Good morning. We appreciate you being here. We want to welcome all of our campuses. Simon James, who heads up our technology here at the church, is in DeBerry uh, this week. So you guys uh, make sure he stays in line uh, down in Florida. I want to remind you of a couple things here at the Bible Chapel. Our purpose, our vision is to develop followers of Jesus Christ. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we want you to take a step closer to a relationship with Christ or a step further along in your relationship with Christ. And on the front of your bulletins, if you're new with us or if you haven't taken that next step, there are three opportunities that I want to tell you about. So go, take your bulletin and let's look at them real quick. First is a Connect class. Whatever campus you're in, we offer Connect classes. Uh, here at the South Hills campus, we have a schedule. At other campuses, just ask the campus pastor and, and uh, they will let you know uh, when uh, the Connect class is, or maybe just a meeting to go over uh, some of the things that we think is important for you to make decisions uh, here at our church. We go over our history, our doctrine, our vision, and our ministries. Those are the four things we feel like you need to know in order to take the next step. Also, Living Grounded is another thing you can do. Living Grounded is a 12-week curriculum that talks about the essentials of the Christian faith, so you can be a part of that. And then serving or volunteering. Now, a lot of the service opportunities here, you need to be a member because obviously we want our kids uh, to be taught by those who know Christ and who agree with uh, our doctrine here at the church. But there are a lot of opportunities that you can do on your own before you become a member or just to see what it's like. A lot of, way, a lot of times it's great to get to know what a church is like just by, by serving or shadowing. And so you can do that Call, the, call or contact the person in charge of a, a ministry or at the campus, and uh, you can just uh, follow someone through. So we encourage you to get connected. Now, at the 9 o'clock service, my wife came up afterward and said, when you did all that connect stuff, you were a little harsh. So did I do better that time? Was that inviting? So you, thank you. All right, I want to be inviting with that. We want, I don't want to run you away. Thank you. I don't want to run you away. We want to invite you, and it's so important. We are passionate about you getting involved uh, in ministry here because it's so important. It's not, it's not for us. It's God's given you that gift, and, and, and he wants you to use it. And that's where we find true satisfaction and meaning and purpose in life. And always we want to thank you for giving. We just appreciate you giving. This is a generous, generous congregation, and have been for years on behalf of the the uh, elders and, and pastoral staff, we appreciate uh, your generosity. We appreciate you taking stewardship uh, seriously with your time and your service and your resources. Father, thank you for all that you're doing in our lives and thank you for what you're doing in our church. We thank you, Father, for all of our campuses and the things that you're doing there, the, the different personalities each campus has and, and the ways that uh, people can be ministered to in different ways. We thank you, Father, for what you're doing in our, in, in our life. Sometimes tremendous blessings are coming, and sometimes challenges are coming. We'll talk about that today. And I pray, Father, that you would be the one that we look to to find the answers for the challenges, the questions, the confusion, and even the great blessings. Help us to always look to you to find the source and answers the questions in our life. Lord, we have come together, we've sung together, and now in all of our campuses, we want to pray together as your Son, our Savior, taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom. Glory forever. Amen. Amen. This past week, a longtime member of our church, Linda Stanko, closed her eyes in death and woke up to see Jesus. Her service was held on Friday. Linda's testimony began with the time of suffering. She had times of tremendous anxiety after 
she had her first child. And that consternation, that anxiety, that suffering led her to begin to ask questions about the meaning of life, her life. How did God fit it all in together? How did she fit into his plan? And probably at that point asking how did God fit into her plans? She started reading the Bible. She started attending a church and she heard the gospel. And it all got started with the time of suffering. We'll talk more about Linda's story a little later. But right now, I want to ask you some questions as we get started on today's passage. Is it possible for God to use suffering to bring us to himself? Is it possible for God to use suffering to teach us? Is it possible for God to use suffering to protect us? Is it possible that suffering produces great spiritual benefits as painful as suffering can be? Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Job as we continue our series through this Old Testament book. It's an easy book to find. You just open your Bibles up to the middle and you're in the book of Psalms and then you go one book back and you are in the book of Job. Job is the man who is the center of our story and he was a man who when the book starts, he was living a dream. He lived here in this area called Edom. Uh, In that day, it was called the land of Uz and today it is northern Saudi Arabia. So to put that in perspective of the world, you have Edom here, you have Israel here, Canaan, and then today with a lot of action going on in Syria, right to the north. Now the Bible says that Job was the greatest man in all the east. And commentators say, most commentators think that Job was a contemporary of Abraham. So if Abraham was the greatest man in all the West, Job's the greatest man in all the East. I think it's very interesting and informative as we look at the book of Job because we know when we read the Old Testament that the Old Testament is about the nation of it, how God works with the nation of Israel, right? How God through the nation of Israel is going to bring the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so sometimes we can conclude that since All the Old Testament, or most of it, is about Israel or working around Israel or things that's happening in Israel. We can conclude that God's just focused on that one little country, and certainly much of his focus is there, but Job reminds us that God's not a God of just one country, is he? And he's a God of the whole known world. And he's working in this man's life named Job, who is described as a man who is blameless, upright, fears God, and turn from evil. He's not perfect, but he is a man who the pattern of his life is set apart for God. He was a leader of his family, there's no doubt about that. He had a great relationship, or it seems, with his wife, and he had 10 children, and they got along very well, and their spouses, and every birthday, every time a child had a birthday, they all got together, and they had this great celebration. And Job was blessed. He was a blessed individual. And he had a lot of money. He had more money than he knew what to do with. And he was a good steward of his money. We learned last week that he said, even though, now this is, this is a tough one for wealthy individuals. Even though he had more money than he knew what to do with, he did not put his trust in wealth. But he used it as a tool for generosity and forgiving. In fact, Job was a model follower of God. God himself said this in Job chapter 1, verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns from evil? Job, if you want to know what it looks like to follow me, 
If you want to know what it looks like to fear me, if you want to know what it looks like to just to be all out about me, you just look at Job. He's the man. And Satan said, seriously, God? Look at verse 9. Does Job fear you for no reason? I mean, who wouldn't fear you if you gave him all the stuff? You're, you're, like, a, you're like a grandfather who lavishes the gifts on the grandkids, right? You give them all the toys, and you buy them a car, and, and, and you pay for their college tuition, then you set them up in business. I mean, who wouldn't serve you? Who wouldn't love you? Who wouldn't go visit you? If you give them all that stuff. See, God, it's not, it's not who you are. That's, Job doesn't serve you because of who you are. Job serves you because of what you do. And that's really the question of the book of Job. I have it written right at the top in my Bible. Is God enough? That's what we're trying to get at in the book of Job. Is God enough? Now, this interaction between God and Job, between God and Satan, rather, in this heavenly council, it's, uh, we don't read a lot about that in Scripture. But don't think that it just happened back in the Old Testament. In Revelation chapter 10, uh, 12, verse 10, I heard in a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of all our brothers, brothers being generic, brothers or sisters, has been thrown down who accuses them, us, day and night before God. So just think about that. Now, this is Revelation, so this hasn't happened yet. So right now, Satan, in some heavenly council, again, I don't know what that looks like, he stands before God accusing us, making accusations against us. They say they're your child and they live like that. Are you serious? You bless them like that? Well, who'd, that's a Job story. Who wouldn't serve you if you keep blessing them like that? Accuses us day and night before God. Just think about that. Now, the rest of the story of Job is kind of hard to wrap our minds around. Uh, God allows Satan to bring devastation in, in Job's life to prove that God is enough, that Job's going to be faithful. After a series of devastating events, Job is, is weighed down by a heavy heart and a broken body, and he leaves his beautiful home and his family who are no more and his beautiful neighborhood, and where does he move to? City dump. That's where outcasts go. That's where people who have who been devastated, it seems, by God goes. That's where you go when you're sick. And there he sits, desiring comfort, Desiring encouragement, desiring sympathy, desiring prayer. He just needs someone to come and sit with him during another painful day. Three of his friends do come, and they sit for a week, and then they start talking, and they give him challenge and, 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 and rebuke and prescribe ways for his confused and hurting heart to, to get fixed. Eliphaz is the first one, remember, who came. Eliphaz is speaking out of experience. That's how he does things. If I've experienced, it has to be real. And Eliphaz looks him right in the eye and says, Job, here's the deal. You're in this difficult situation because you sinned. That's what happened to you. You're a sinner. You sinned. If you just repent, God will restore you. The next man, Bildad, he comes. He says basically the same thing, except he starts at a different point. He says, based on history, Job, I know this, God is just. And God punishes, because he's just, he punishes sin. Therefore, you must be really, really bad. If you just repent, God will restore you. Zophar was the next one. He was a dogmatist. He basically repeats the narrative. And at some point in the Zophar uh, speeches that Job says, I am done. 
I'm not going to listen to my friends anymore. I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to respond to you guys. I don't have to respond to you guys. I'm taking my case right to God. I'm pleading my cause to him. By the way, that's what we do in suffering, isn't it? It's not about our friends. Our friends, they may disappoint us. They may not respond like we want them to respond. They may not be around when we want them to be around. We can always be disappointed in people. Boy, if you put your trust in people, you'll always be disappointed. But our argument in suffering is always with God. God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Why would you allow this to happen? And that's what Job says. God, I'm done with my friends. God, I want to know what you're doing. And I need you to speak. I'm innocent. I'm not perfect, but my life, we saw last time, my life is free from these sins. And I want to make my case before you. In fact, look at Job chapter 31, uh, verse 35. Job says, oh, that I had one to hear me. Oh, that God would listen to me. And then he says, here is my signature, exclamation mark. I am writing my name on my summary defense. Here's my signature, God. Here it is. You look at it. It's my name. I'm signing it. Let the Almighty answer me. It is your turn to talk. You know what God does? He doesn't do anything. Not a thing. He will. He'll speak, but God can never be coerced or forced to talk because of us. Now, God's going to answer Job in chapter 38 through 42, and he has a lot to say. But before he does, a man named Elihu speaks in chapters 32 through 37. And it seems that Job, remember, he has just said, God, I sign my name, here's my summary defense, talk to me, and it seems like God says, Job, you better settle down. I got plenty to say, but I need a buffer time here. I need you to, I need a timeout. And so he brings a man named Elihu in. And Elihu comes and talks to Job. Again, he has a bunch to say. And think of Elihu as God's gracious buffer before he uh, speaks in chapters 38 through 42. So let's look at Elihu. First of all, Elihu was the son of Barakel, the Buzite. This means probably that um, he was a descendant of Abraham's nephew, Buzz. Abraham's brother had 12 children. The first one they named Uz, and the next one they named Buzz. Then they got a little more creative with names after that. Uz and Buzz, I love that. Eli was the youngest who has spoken so far. Now, Elihi, uh, Elihu, uh, every, I've been saying Eli all, for two services now, so if I say Eli, I mean Elihu. Is that okay? Okay, I'm gonna do my best. Now, Elihu had waited to speak to Job because he was, they were older than him, so he's the youngest guy, and it's probably not that Elihu was a friend of Job, but he was hanging around. You can only imagine that as these three guys were speaking, a great crowd gathered. Come out, let's, let's go here. It's like entertainment. Let's go hear these guys talk to Job. And Elihu comes, and he's been listening. In fact, he took notes. He's going to use quotes from Job to go back after Job. Younger, he's got a lot to say. He has listened to the entire conversation, and he is Anger. Here's a guy with some anger issues. Check this out. He burned with anger. His burn with anger at Job. He burned with anger at Job's three friends. And then he just burned with anger. <laughs> Four times in, the, in that introduction, this guy's mad. He is irritated. And he has some things to say in the first 17 verses. Three times he says, I am declaring my opinion. And then look at chapter 32, verse 18. I am full of words. I can't wait to let them out. 
My spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I might find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will show no partiality to any man. He's a little full of himself. Use no flattery toward any person. I don't even know how to flatter. Else my maker would take me away. Elihu's young. And he's kind of like, he's kind of like the guy right out of seminary who has like a truck full of knowledge and he's just going to dump it on everybody. Chuck Swindoll, a writer and a pastor and the president of Dallas Seminary where I attended, was fond of saying, it takes you four years to get through Dallas Seminary and then four years to get over Dallas Seminary. And uh, Elihu wasn't quite over it yet. He wasn't over himself yet. His belly's full of knowledge. He has things to say eight times in his speech. He says, listen up. Listen to what I'm saying. Job, listen. And he uses Job's name, which is abnormal during that time because a younger person would not usually use a man's name. But over and over, he says, hey, Job, listen up. Even the friends sometime, listen up, which made one commentator think maybe they were dozing off. They're getting tired of him talking. And he says, hey, listen up. I got some things to tell you. He makes three major points. Three major points. He says, and we'll go over these quickly. He says, God is gracious. God is just. And God is great. He has some good things to say. He has some right things to say. God is gracious. God is just and God is great. But the one point I want to drive home is that Elihu makes the statement that Job, God, uses suffering to either protect you from sin or to train you. God uses suffering to protect you or to train you. Let's think about that. He begins his first point in these six chapters with God is gracious. And he says in chapter 33, uh, verse 9, you say, Job, I am pure without transgression. I am clean and there is no integrity in me. Now, actually, Job didn't say that. That was Zophar's interpretation of what Job had said, but he uses it anyway. And then he goes on to talk about in verse 12, behold, is this in this you are not right? I will answer you, for God is greater than man and God is gracious in his work with man. And he explains that God is gracious in working with man in three different ways. First of all, Job, you're saying that he's silent and he's not speaking to you. But Job, that's not true because Job speaks and sometimes man misses it. Job, God speaks, alive who said, in visions. And God does, had, did in the Old Testament speak in visions, right? In the New Testament he did. Today he speaks to us through his word. In that day, he spoke through visions. And he said, people miss that sometimes. Job, don't miss that. And he said, secondly, God speaks through angels. And certainly we know that. In the Old Testament, many times God sent an angel. In the New Testament, sent an angel to speak. Then he said, Job, God's not silent. God speaks in our Pain. Well, we know that to be true, don't we? C.S. Lewis famously said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now, we know that all suffering does not come from God. We live in a broken world, and sometimes broken people hurt other people and cause them to suffer. But sometimes, sometimes, God uses suffering to protect us and teach us. Job chapter 33, look at verse 29. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man, 
And he does them for a purpose, to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. Sometimes, Job, God uses suffering to protect us and to teach us. Anytime you hear a sermon or anytime you're teaching and you make a statement, it's only your opinion until you can back it up with Scripture, right? So how can we, is there a place in Scripture that we could back that up where God uses suffering to prevent sin and to teach us? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Let me set the context. The Apostle Paul has just had a vision of heaven. When he's writing this, he says it happened 14 years earlier. And he says, he went to, he, he said, I don't, he, he, Paul said, I don't know if I was like transported there in my bodily form or just, I just got this uh, mental picture, but I know this, I saw heaven. I got a glimpse of heaven like, like no one has ever seen before. And then he says this, I saw the glimpse of heaven and I heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. I want to emphasize that. I went to heaven, and I saw things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Now, I I can be a little cynical sometimes. But there was only one person who went to heaven that we know of in Scripture, and when he got back, he didn't write a book about it, And he didn't make a movie about it. He said, I saw things that cannot be told, that man may not utter. So be careful when you see or read of these experiences that people say they have had in heaven. Because the one person we knew that went there says, I was told not to say anything about it. In fact, Look at chapter 12, verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited. Man, I saw some great stuff. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, you wouldn't believe what I saw. No one has seen that, and God took me there. And so to keep me from being conceited, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. This suffering is gracious suffering. For my power is made perfect in weakness, therefore I will boast all the more gladly, Paul says, in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then, then I am content Paul says, I'm content. Listen to the things he's content with. Are we content with these things? I'm content with with weaknesses, with hardships, with insults, with persecutions, with calamities. For when I am weak, what? Then I'm strong. Paul said three times, I prayed that God would take this. And he said, no, because I am protecting The suffering you're going through is protective. You're going through some stuff right now, but you need it to be happening because I'm protecting you from a greater sin or a sin. In Paul's case, it was from becoming conceited. And Paul said, now in the suffering, that won't go away, I can be content in it because when I am weak, then I'm really strong. We don't know what the thorn in the flesh was. Uh, Some think it was a bad eyesight. Um, Some think it was other elements. No one knows what it was. But but Paul would say, God, take it away. I could do more ministry. I could travel more. I I could get more done. Now God says, I want you to depend on me because when you're weak, then you're really strong. 
Okay, turn over to uh, Hebrews chapter 12. So we know that suffering can prevent sin or protect us from sin, right? But um, what else does it do? What else does suffering do? We'll look at chapter 12, verse, let's we'll, we'll start in, in verse seven. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what son is there where his father does not discipline? And if you are left without discipline in which you have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not, and not sons. Everyone is disciplined if you're, if you're a legitimate son or daughter. Your parents love you enough to correct you, to discipline you. Besides, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us, our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he, the heavenly father, the perfect father, always dis disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. There's always a purpose to, to his discipline. At the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Would you say amen to that? But not always at the time, in fact, seldom at the time, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been what? Trained by it. Elihu is saying, Job, be careful with your challenge to God. He's speaking to you in your pain. And he uses pain to prevent sin and to train you. Elihu has some other things to say. We'll go through them fairly quickly. Secondly, he says, God's using this, Job. And remember, he's not only gracious, but he is just. Look at chapter 34, verse 11. Elihu says, for according to the work of a man, God will repay him. And according to his ways, he will make it befall him. That statement by Elihu is at the center of our theology. That statement is at the center of what we believe. That verse says, God will repay man for his sins. We see that through the Old Testament. We see it in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then we see it in Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. God is going to repay man for what he does. In the Old Testament, the man who sins will die. So let's think about that. Here's God, and Elihu has just told us that God is just, right? You get what you deserve. You believe that? Come on, I'm going to try to convince you. You get what you deserve, right? And so here you are. Here you stand before God, and God says, the wages of sin is death. And so his, he's a just God, and we're sinners, so his wrath is poured out on us, right? And that will ultimately lead us to hell, an eternal separation from God, an eternal separation from God experiencing the wrath of God. That's not very good news, is it? But we've seen through Job that God is not only just, he is also merciful. So here we stand, sinners, fallen short, deserving God's wrath, but God demonstrated his love to us in this, what? When we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. God is still just, he still pours his wrath out, but now it is intercepted by Jesus. Jesus died for our sins on the cross. Jesus died so we could what? Forever. See, that's what it means to be a Christian. Accepting the fact that I deserve God's wrath. 
But God loved me so much. 1 Peter 2.24. Jesus bore my sins in his body on the cross. Jesus took God's wrath for me, so I don't have to. He died so I could live. You know what? That's why they call it good news. Isn't that good news? And the question is, have you done that? Have you trusted in Jesus alone as the only way to have a relationship with the living God? The last thing that Elihu says is, God's not only gracious, he's not only just, but Job, you got to get a grip on this. God's not apart from your suffering. He uses it. God is great. God is great. Look at chapter 36, verse 7. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous. God is great. Look at verse 26. Behold, God is great and we know him not. We can't comprehend everything he's doing. The number of his years are unsearchable. God is great. Now, it's interesting here, and I'm going to go over this real quick, and you can read it on your own. It's in verse, uh, chapter 36. Elihu, again, he's young and he's a little full of himself, but he makes some great points. He says, Job, be careful because there is danger in suffering. And he lists four dangers of suffering that are just as relevant today as they were when this book was written. First, he says, and again, I'll just give you the passage. I won't take time to read it. First, he says in Job 36, 13, Job, don't get angry and bitter toward God in your suffering. Boy, that's easy to do, isn't it? God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? The suffering is certainly painful. It hurts. You've taken away what I wanted. You've given me what I didn't want. God, what are you doing? It's easy to get bitter toward God. And, 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 and Elihu says, don't do that, Job. Then Elihu says in chapter 36, 18 through 19, Job, don't look for a shortcut. God's working in you. God's working with you. Don't look for a shortcut in this. Then he says something significant. He says, Job, I've been listening to you all the time and you've been wishing you weren't born or wishing you were still born and several times you said, I wish I, wish I was gone. I wish I was dead. And he said, Job, whatever you do, do not take your life. That's God's. That's not yours. Don't take your life. And then he says one other thing. Job, don't turn away from God and turn to sin. That can happen in pain. You've seen it happen and I've seen it happen. Person goes through a difficult time. They wonder, God, what are you doing? They become bitter. And then they say, God, if that's the way you treat your children, I don't even know if I want to be one of them. Now, whether they were a, if they were a true believer, they'll come back. But if they just had that, you know, kind of just that, professing faith that wasn't really a believer, sometimes that's when, the, that's when the faith is demonstrated to not be real and they walk away in pain. So, so Elihu says, Job, be really, really careful. And Elihu ends just by saying, Job, you gotta realize, man, God is great. God is great. Chapter uh, 37 Verse 14, hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. It's interesting. I won't take time to do this. You can do this on your own. But in chapter 37, uh, Elihu goes through and he says, God is so great. And he goes through all the seasons of the year. He says, here's what God does in the autumn, Job. You can see it all around you in nature. Here's what God uh, in the fall. Here's what God uh, does in the winter. And then here's how God acts in the, in the spring as he brings the new life to all the plants. And here's the heat of the summer. And God is always at work, Job. Now here's what's, in, what's interesting. As we open up chapter 38, next time, God's going to answer. This was a gracious buffer. And it says in the first verse of 38, chapter 38, that God answers out of the whirlwind 
or he answers out of the storm. So as we leave chapter 37, just think about it. Elihu is speaking to Job, and right behind Job, the clouds are getting dark, and the lightning is starting to flash, and the wind's picking up, because God is on the way. So earlier, I talked about Linda Stenko. She had uh, five, month, five months ago, man, five months ago, she was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Now she's gone. And um, I wanted to read some of her testimony. Linda had written out her testimony earlier on when she became a member of our church. And here's what she said. She said, I believed there was a God and I needed to be good and follow the commandments to get to heaven. I tried to be kind and forgiving to others. I got caught up in daily life of college, marriage, starting a family. It was after the birth of my first child that I was going through some difficult times with anxiety. And I started to search for the meaning of life. And then she talked about starting to read scripture. And then a friend invited her to a church. And she's wondering how God's fitting into this. And she said this, at the same time, this friend invited me to to a small Christian church uh, with them. and And I started to hear the gospel regularly. And I accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior of my life. Now, listen to what she says here. This was still not where I needed to be at that time because I still thought in terms of Christ dying for our sins instead of Christ dying for what? For my sins. Some of you are there. You know Jesus died for our sins, but you don't have a personal relationship with him. You've not accepted the fact that he died for my sins, for your sins. She said, once I came to a full understanding of what it meant to be saved from the consequences of sin, I really started to feel the love of God, which brought a lot of peace and abiding joy with it. I feel a great deal of peace and joy since knowing Jesus. I am so grateful for what he's done for me. I want to live to honor him, please him in all I do. I trust him to guide me in my daily living and I want to share him with other people who don't have that peace and joy. In 2014, Linda was baptized, and she did not like attention. So she said, I want to be baptized, but I don't want to do a video. Uh, By the way, you can be baptized here and not do a video. That's okay, right? Permission. If that's keeping you from doing it, you don't have to do that. John the Baptist, he didn't have a video. It worked out. So when we do that, we always ask for a favorite Bible verse. And in her testimony, she said her favorite Bible verse, you know what it was? This was before she she had cancer. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things, what? Work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Listen to what she said. When I felt so much anxiety, I would cling to this knowledge and put my trust in it. Now listen. And in time, God allowed me to realize that it was this anxiety that was the very thing that brought me to know him in the first place. Does God work in our suffering? Sure does, doesn't he? Linda Stenko is more alive today than we are because in her suffering, God opened her eyes to see him and used that suffering to bring her to himself. Don't miss what God is teaching you in your suffering. And I say that to myself because, boy, we don't like it when we're in it, do we? God used Linda's suffering to bring her to himself. And so the question for us is, what's God using our suffering for? To prevent us from a sin? To teach us? But the question in that pain is, God, what are you doing in my life? How are you using this?
how do I learn from this? How are you preparing me to do the things you need me to do? We're going to hand off to all of our campuses as you guys uh, close on your own. Here in the South Hills, uh, Tony's going to come back out and lead us in that song that uh, she sang earlier. And I'd, I'd ask you when Tony first starts singing, just close your eyes and think about the words to that song. Whatever's going on in your life, the refrain that you're going to hear over and over is what? Christ will hold you fast. Christ will hold you fast. Even when you can't hold on any longer, Christ will hold you fast. I encourage you, close your eyes and just pray that as Tony sings it, and then she'll invite us at some point to stand and, and sing with her. But allow this to be our, our closing prayer. Father, do that work, I pray, in our hearts. Focus us on that truth that you hold us fast even in our suffering and you have a purpose for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Join us and stand and say, He.
Christ will hold me fast Justice has been satisfied He will hold me fast What a tremendous truth. He will hold us fast. In the flute intro and outro to that, that old hymn, Be still, my soul. The Lord is on your side. God's on our side. He will hold us fast. Whatever you got going on in your life. And we'd love to pray with you. If you'd like to do that, our pastoral staff and elders will be up front after the service. And we'd love to pray with you and for you, whatever you have going on in your life. Father, we thank you for the truth, the hard truth, the really hard truth, that in our suffering, you use it to protect us and to train us. It's not fun at the, at the moment, you tell us that in your word. But later on, we learn, we see the great work that you did in the midst of our pain. So, Father, keep us away from the dangers of suffering and help us to look to you and be good learners. Stretch us, mold us, form us into that man, that woman that you desire us to be, that you need us to be for the next stage of our journey. Thank you, Father, for our time this morning. Thank you for holding us fast. In Jesus' name, amen.